First Peter chapter 2, and as you're turning there, I'm going to ask a question for us to dwell upon for just a moment. Why is it that Christians are saved? Now, the answer to this might seem easy. Well, Garrett, you're a pastor. You should know Jesus died for our sins. Okay. But what does that actually even mean? What is it about the words, Jesus died for our sins? What is it in that that actually saves us? Is it that, yes, praise God, son, that's right. What is it about that that saves us? Is it that, well, Jesus overcame the enemy of death and he overcame the enemy of Satan and that's what saves us is that we are no longer under that power? Is it that there's a payment for our sin that needs to be made? Is it some other reason? When we think about the resurrection, we recognize that it's important, but exactly how important is it? Could it be that Jesus lived and died, but then wasn't resurrected and our sins still be atoned for? Could Jesus have not been resurrected and we still be saved? If we could strip it down to how Jesus saves us to the most basic fundamental components, I would argue that there are three components that are inseparable from one another. Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. If you remove any one of those three or try to have one from apart from the other two, you have lost a necessary ingredient for our salvation. For example, let's take the resurrection. Jesus wasn't the only person to be resurrected. Who else was resurrected? Lazarus. Well, our sins aren't atoned for because Lazarus was resurrected. So it's not just the resurrection. What, what is it about Jesus' resurrection that's so special? Or let's think about Jesus' death. Jesus isn't the only person that's died. Everybody, save two. <laughs> Bonus points if you know these. Enoch and Elijah in the scriptures have died. So then what makes Jesus' death so special? And what about Jesus' life? Now, no one has ever lived a perfect life like Jesus, but if Jesus lived a perfect life and that's it, he didn't die, he didn't rise then he would be the only one in heaven with the Father and the Spirit and all of his holy angels worshiping him. So you can't have any just one component. All three are necessary, and what we are gathering this morning to celebrate, and what we celebrate every Sunday, but especially this Sunday, is the resurrection. The resurrection completes the entire work of salvation for our sin. The resurrection is vital. We've already read this morning, if there is no resurrection, we are to be pitied. So here's our main idea this morning, if you're taking notes. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus makes life, death, and resurrection available to us. So this morning, I want to look at all three of these components to understand exactly what they accomplish in our salvation, but I also want to look at all three components as giving us something every day in order to live for God. Without these, we could not do so. So this not only saves us, but informs us how we are to live 
in the here and now as well. With all of that groundwork being laid, I'm going to ask everyone to stand together for the reading of God's holy word. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Pray with me, church. Holy Spirit, you who inspired every word of this sacred text, we ask that you would illuminate your word in our hearts this morning, that you would cause your truth to shine deeply within us, exposing any remaining darkness within us, that we might behold you in all of your glory. We ask you to do these things through Jesus and because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. Now, before we dive into all that this verse has for us, we really need to be sure that we're understanding it in the right way. If we were to just take a verse and rip it out of its context in this book, we can make a lot of verses say almost anything we want. First Peter was written by Peter to the persecuted church that had scattered. And Peter wants the church to be obedient wherever they've been scattered. You see that in chapter 1, verse 2. Then chapter 1, verse 15, we see Christians are called to a holy lifestyle because God is holy. Since God is holy, therefore you be holy in all that you do. Then in chapter 2, verse 12, the church is being persecuted, so Peter instructs them to remain honorable in their conduct. This is an overflow of their holiness. Even as they're maligned and persecuted, they are to remain honorable in how they respond. So the idea climaxes in 1 Peter 4, verse 19. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So he's saying, in effect, it is God's will that you are suffering. Here's how you should respond. Trust God and do good while you suffer. This morning's passage is situated right in the middle of this conversation. Exactly how is it that Christians are to keep their conduct honorable in the midst of suffering and persecution? Well, one way that this happens, leading up to our text this morning, is in chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He gives the same instructions to servants and slaves down here in verse 18. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 
Peter doesn't want them to escape their suffering. He wants them to endure it. This is crazy, right? Only a psycho would do something like this. Who would willingly endure suffering when there is a way of escape? And this is where Peter gives the pillar that supports his entire group of instructions here. And it leads us to our passage this morning in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Here's what Peter is saying. You are to endure suffering because Jesus endured suffering. And he left you an example. Jesus had a way of escape. He's God in the flesh. At any moment, he can snap his fingers and the angels are coming down and they are mopping the floor with all of his enemies. All he has to do is sit back and watch. In just a moment, he could speak a single word and everything that stands against him can be instantly uncreated in the exact same way that it was instantly created. This isn't a contest. If you've seen the Marvel movies, I am obviously a huge superhero fan. I know I'm a, I'm a dork. It's okay. I own it. Thanos has this power, this glove, where he can snap, and you just watch things vaporize. They just turn to dust. And he had to collect these stones and get all this power. We serve a God that doesn't have to do all of that. He can simply stand and think something, and it instantly happens. There is no standing against this type of God. Jesus had a way of escape, but he didn't. I want you to notice here that as Peter is making the argument, we need to endure suffering. Part of his foundation as to why and how is by pointing to the life of Jesus. To this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered. When did he suffer? In his life, leaving you an example. Peter's use of this is to show us how we are to live. But it's important that we see that God has also revealed why it is that Jesus' life is so significant. Jesus' life isn't significant just because we have an example of how to live. Look at the next verse in verse 22. In his life, what did he do? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus' life is significant because he is the sinless Son of God. And his perfect life demonstrates that. If we didn't have a perfect life of Jesus... His death would mean nothing. It would mean nothing. He is the sinless Son of God who committed no sin. He didn't lie to escape death. In verse 23, he didn't retaliate when he was persecuted. He didn't revile or threaten. He just trusted the Father and endured. When I read this passage, you know what I am hit with is how completely, utterly opposite of this I am. That's not the way that I live my life. 
When I see danger coming, instantly turn, run, get family, go. Our defensive instincts within us will grasp for whatever straws necessary to survive. We're even willing to sin for it. When others sin against us, what do we do? We sin right back. We get even. We get revenge. Someone is mad at us. What do we do? Well, I get mad. When others talk ill of us, what do we do? We do it right back. And then we justify it because they did it first. There's not a day that goes by that we don't think, speak, or do what is evil in the sight of God. Every day. All of us. We are worthy of condemnation. We defy God's rule every single day. And we do it willingly and we do it knowingly. And we have the audacity to think, I'm not deserving of punishment. You know who God is, and you know his commands, just like I do. And what do we do? We still rebel. But Jesus is not like this. Jesus did not sin. He committed no sin. And this leads to our first point this morning. We've got three. Number one, Jesus lived for us that we might live for him. And there's two parts to this and every other point following. There's two parts. There's what Jesus has done, and then there's what we are to do. So what has Jesus done? Jesus lived for us. What does that mean? Another way of saying this is that Jesus lived in our place. We are supposed to have lived a certain way. The Bible uses the term righteousness. We are supposed to be a people of righteousness, doing what our God commands for us to do. We're supposed to do what is right and avoid what is wrong. But we are not righteous. So, Jesus lived a perfect life, a righteous life, and then he gives us the credit for his life. Do you see why this is necessary? I'm supposed to have righteousness, but I don't. So I need someone to give it to me. Well, for someone to give it to me, they need to have it. So Jesus lived in complete righteousness so that he might give that righteousness to me. It's credited to my account. Imagine that you're on the street with no place to live. No food. No place to go. No family. And because you're on the street, you can't hold a job. You can't make enough money to get out of your situation. Then someone else, a rich prince, the son of a king, leaves his palace, gets a room in whatever the local motel is, and out of his own expenses pays for his room until he can work at a little corner store, gas station, whatever minimum wage job for 30 years in order to save up enough money 
to give it to some individual so that he might have a place finally to go after all this time. And he comes with all of his money and gives it to you so that you might not die. And then he goes back to where he came from. This is what Jesus has done for us in his life. He lived in our place because we couldn't do it. Romans 5.19 says this, For as by the one man's disobedience, talking about Adam in the garden, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus' righteousness makes the many righteous. Who are the many? All of those who trust him. That's the many. The many is not everyone. We'll get to that in a moment. So Jesus literally lived for us. We couldn't do it, so he did it in our place. That's the first part of the point. The second part says, so that we might live for him. Look in verse 21. You have been called to this lifestyle that Peter explains because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow. We are instructed to live as we are called. We are already called righteous. That comes first. Then out of that calling, We are to live as though we were the ones that earned that, even though we're not. So Jesus earned our righteousness. I become a Christian. I am righteous, even though I don't deserve that. So then my response to what I've been called is, I want to live as though that is true of me and has been the whole time. So my life forward reflects this identity. I'm a Christian. So I want to be holy as God is holy. I want to be righteous as he has called me righteous. How do we do that? By doing what Jesus did. He is our righteousness. Jesus did not save us from the consequences of sin so that we could sin without consequence. Jesus died to save us from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. The problem is that some of us really just want to be saved from the penalty. You don't get to pick and choose with this. It's not a buffet. It's both and or none of it. And it's all because of Jesus' life. We are not obligated to give in to our sinful desires anymore. We're called to fight against sin because that's what Jesus did. Peter continues in verse 24. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So Peter moves from Jesus' life to Jesus' death. And again, he states what Jesus did and then what we are to do in light of that. So here's our second point this morning. Jesus died for us that we might die for him. 
So again, what does it mean that Jesus died for us? When Jesus went to the cross, he took something with him. He did not go empty-handed. Jesus took with himself all of our sins. Whose sins? The sins of everyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This offer is made to everyone, but just because the offer is made to everyone does not mean that everyone is forgiven. It is only those who trust Jesus as Lord and Savior that will be forgiven of their sin. The only reason this works is because Jesus took our sin upon himself. And if you think about it, why is it that he was able to do that? It's only because he was sinless first. He came to the cross with nothing. So he was able to grab a hold of our sin and bring it with him onto the cross. If he had his own sin to deal with, he couldn't take our sin. He has to die for his own sin. So do you see now why we cannot separate, we cannot have Jesus' death without first having his life? He lived for us so that he could die for us. It is inseparable. It's as though our sin is a target and God's wrath is aimed against us because we bear the target of sin, but then Jesus takes our target off of us and places it upon himself at the cross. So though we are in front of Jesus and we are in God's crosshairs, his wrath has not hit us with its full fury, but has looked up to his son and has hit him instead. We don't actually get to see this. On the cross. What we see is this broken man bleeding and suffering and trying to breathe and just in agony on the cross. To try to give us some example of what it must be like to suffer God's wrath against sin. That is what has paid for our sin. So though Jesus was sinless and not deserving punishment, he received our punishment so that we might not bear it. Now, Jesus died for us so that we might die for him. Peter tells us plainly. He says that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We Christians are called to die. How? What does that mean? Are we all supposed to be martyrs? Are we all supposed to go overseas and die? Are we all supposed to die here for our faith, as some have recently? Here's what it means, 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We all desire sin. It's built within us. Even as Christians, I desire sin. And I'm a pastor. I know you desire it too. To make Jesus Lord and Savior means, Jesus, 
your desires trump my desires. This means the things that I want to do, I'm willing to not do it because I really want to do what you want me to do first. And then Jesus has given us everything we need to actually do that. Before Jesus, we can't. We have our desires, but then we know what's right, and we can just never seem to accomplish it. But now we have the power to pursue a higher desire. Paul explains in the book of Romans, the things that I want to do are not the things that I do, but it's the very things that I don't want to do that I keep on doing. He recognizes there are these competing desires, the things that my flesh wants and the things that God desires for me. To die to self is to say, my desire no longer matters. That is hard to do. That is difficult to do. Because we are designed to operate on our instincts. But in doing so, we reveal that we're more like animals than we are men and women made in the image of God. Jesus died to free us from that. That we might sacrifice our desires. And this is especially hard for us as red-blooded Americans because I have the right to do whatever I want to do. Not if you follow Christ. He calls you to die to your desires. It is difficult, but he is able to help you to do it. Just like Jesus' life teaches us how to live, Jesus' death teaches us how to die. It requires suffering and commitment and dedication You have to be willing to suffer because you're going to want something really badly and for you to pursue something else, you will suffer for it. We all know the struggle when you show up to the church potluck and there's the one dessert left on the table that everybody knows this person brings the dessert every time and I need to get there early because if not, it's all going to be gone. And there's this instinctual battle within us to hurry up and get to the table before that other slower person does so I can get that plate. If I decide in that moment to selflessly give it to someone else, guess what? I have to suffer. I have to watch them eat it. There's suffering involved in sacrifice. We cannot expect the Christian life to be easy. We must expect suffering. Why? Because you have to die to your desires. It isn't easy, but this is who we are as Christians. We stop living like the rest of the world because we choose to die to that way of life daily. We don't speak like the rest of the world. Foul language, dirty jokes, gossip, slander, lies, insults. We don't think like the rest of the world. Entertaining lustful thoughts. Wishing harm upon one another. Plotting and scheming as to how you might get ahead of someone. Hating other people. Wishing that they would just leave. We don't act like the rest of the world, mocking authority, 
unholy gestures, sexual immorality, theft, getting drunk or pursuing a high off of some kind of substance abuse, fits of rage or acts of violence. It's not that the desire for these things instantly and completely goes away when we become a Christian. The reason that we do these things is because in the moment we want to do those things. It's that God gives us the power to deny our desires, to die to our desires by giving us a greater desire. We have this greater desire that now trumps this lesser desire. That's the secret to this. That's how it works. And God gives us the strength we need to achieve our greater desire to honor God. He does this so that we might not live in sin anymore, but that we might die to it. And the final analogy in verse 25 is perfect. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We are lost sheep, but Jesus, our shepherd and overseer, these are words in the New Testament used for the office pastor. So Jesus, our pastor, draws us back to himself so that he might lead and guide us in his green pastures. We submit to him as our perfectly, our perfect heavenly pastor, meaning that we are no longer in control of our own lives. Our desires fall underneath his desires. It's a beautiful thing. Here's our third point this morning. Jesus rose for us that we might rise with him. You'll have to fast forward just a little bit to see this final point. Chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus was killed in the flesh, but was made alive in the Spirit. When Jesus died, God the Father brought him back to life in part to confirm both Jesus' life and death by raising him from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is proof that Jesus' life was good enough and his death was complete enough to atone for our sins. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then one of two things would be true. Either his life wasn't good enough, he had sin, or his death wasn't payment enough to cover all of our sin. So he had to stay dead. The good news is, his life was good enough, his death was complete enough, and God raised Jesus from the dead to show us that. It's as though in the resurrection, God has said, payment accepted. Your debt is wiped clean. Here's your receipt. 
And we hang on to this receipt, eagerly awaiting a future day when we will all rise to be with him forever. Finally, completely free from the bondage to sin that we have. We have this receipt. But how does Jesus' resurrection help us live for him in the here and now? Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have certainty that we will one day rise from the dead to be with him. This is called hope. We have hope. And hope is the fuel of a Christian. How is it that I can unjustly suffer underneath someone else? Because I have hope. How is it that we can endure the loss of a loved one in the midst of a chaotic world? Because we have hope. If we have no hope, we have nothing. And the world knows this. That's why when you watch all these movies, especially the superhero movies, it looks like all is doomed. But then someone comes up and they're like, we must have hope. But they say it more eloquently than that. But that's always the secret in all these movies and all these stories. You just got to have hope. Everyone knows hope is the secret. You destroy someone's hope and their whole lives are shattered. It's hope that gives us what we need to break out of this cycle. Hope is the gas in our tank to fuel us to live and to die for God daily. It's our hope that gives us what we need to live for Jesus now. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our sin would not be forgiven because it would mean that his life or death didn't cut it. But he did rise, and because he rose, we can now have hope, but not all of us. Not everyone has hope. In this room this morning, there are some of you that are living underneath a false hope. And you're basing your hope off of your ability to do the right thing more often than not. Listen to me carefully, please. One day your life is going to shatter and your false hope will vanish because you will realize that you are not good enough. You can never be good enough. I hope you recognize that today. I lived a lie for 20 plus years before I realized my life was bankrupt. I was blind. I couldn't see it. And I believe that there are some in here who are blind and cannot see it. Only God can reveal this blindness to you. And that's my prayer for you this morning. Is that he might pull the veil off of over your eyes. That you might see you are hopeless without him. This morning, we Christians celebrate the resurrection. Because it is our hope. This is the fuel that we need to continue to live for God. 
We live for Jesus because he lived for us. We die for Jesus because he died for us. And one day, we will rise like Jesus because he rose for us. If you are visiting this morning, this offer stands for you. You can have forgiveness for all of your sin if you will turn to Jesus to be saved. Commit your life to him as your Lord and your Savior and turn from your sin. And he will save you. And he will wipe away every sin on your account. And every sin that will be added to your account will already be atoned for. It is an inestimable value that is being offered to you today. For the rest of us, are you really certain that you will rise with Jesus one day? Let me tell you the path to certainty. How can you be certain? It isn't because you came up and said a prayer once. It isn't because you checked a card once. It isn't because you're baptized. The path to certainty lies in these two questions. Since that day, have you been living for Jesus and have you been dying for Jesus? If not, you must go back and answer this question. Have I truly trusted Jesus? Because such is the life of one who truly does. Let's pray. Lord God, we celebrate you as our risen King We celebrate you as the victorious ruler of all things. You who display your power in humility by coming down and taking on flesh. Living a perfect life. Putting yourself willingly upon the cross to suffer. That you might Bear our sin and destroy it. You who rose on the third day to show us that the payment for our sin, the transaction, has been completed. To give us a hope that we can look forward to our resurrection from the dead and life eternal with you finally free from the power of sin, fully and forever. Lord God, we praise you for such a marvelous, marvelous gift, for such good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, Lord, would you take the veil off of our eyes and cause us to see ourselves as you see us, that we might learn to depend on you finally and fully, living for you and dying for you because you have first done that for us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.